0: want to lift up, Lord, knowing that, and knowing that we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, that we are your children, and we walk in your authority. We want to lift up our brothers and sisters to you, Lord, who are struggling with health problems. You know who is on our heart. You know who we're thinking of, each of us individually right now, Lord, as we lift them up to you. I think of Mary. I think of of Rocky and his wife. Lord, there are so many people in, on, on our minds right now that we can think of, of that, that need your help, whether it be physically, emotionally. And we lift them up to you, Lord God. Each of us, we lift them up to you, Father God. We ask you that you would touch them, that you would restore them, that you would your healing hand would, would reach out and press against that pain that's within or that pain in their body and that you would heal them. That they right now would feel your presence around them, your love and your healing, peace. We thank you Lord that, that you are able to do all things, we can do all things in you, but only because you are in us and, and, and for us. But you can do all things according to your will, Lord God. So we ask for your healing and your blessing upon those who are struggling. In our congregation, in our fam- among our family members, among our friends, or coworkers, those who we lift you today. And we pray that the season of difficulty that of all those individuals we're talking about, that it will Help them to turn their eyes to you and help them to draw close to you as well as you meet with them. And Lord, as we are here to meet with you and we know you are here among us, I want to pray for the message that you want to offer us today, Lord God. I want to pray for our brother Rick that you will anoint his words, that the words, the message that you have been Brewing within him this week last week or a couple weeks that you would bring it forth and allow him to get out of the way and may you speak through him with all of your glory and all of your might and may you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to tell us today God we thank you so much for your word we thank you for for your messengers as well Rick being the messenger today we ask you again your anointing upon him and your your blessing to work through him. We thank you for this day. and We give you all the glory and all the praise in the wonderful, awesome, and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by his blood we pray, amen.
1: And I pray your health and strength. So today, Um, I am glad to be here with you. Is this too loud? Are we good? All right. Glad to be here with everybody. Um, The message for today is uh, coming from a a bit of my contemplation over the past uh, week here. Uh, I tell you, things hopefully will be moving in the right direction, you know, around the globe here in terms of uh, this virus and, and being able to travel again and see people. I've been grounded for a good two years at this point, going on two years. Uh, that's a long time for me. Uh, but I have on the calendar and on my schedule um, a plan um, to, to make a trip uh, overseas again. So I'm looking at being able to do that soon, and I'm really grateful and thankful to God for that. Um, and the last trip that I had was supposed to be in October, and that got canceled because the place where I was going burned down to the ground, um, which was in California. Uh, so, you know, here at home, we've got our issues too, but I was looking at my calendar and, uh, come, uh, the first few months in 2022, uh, the plan is that I'll probably be, um, not overseas in a place where you might think, you know, there's calamity. That's usually where I go, but I'm going instead to England. I'm going to London. And, uh, my wife, uh, in hearing that, she said, I'm coming too. Um, and that's fine. I definitely welcome her to do that. And, uh, One of the things that I typically do in preparation for those things is I try to look up uh, what are the things that I need to know going into a new location in a new place Um, and so one of the things that I looked up was um, how do you just get around in that particular city London where I'll be Um, and they've got a you know very advanced subway system metro system all should be well Um, but one of the things that I, I found in researching the subway system was they they've got this warning that they post in the subway system and it's called Mind the Gap. Anybody heard of that? Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap is a warning that is regularly issued within the subway system there because there is a gap or a difference between the platform on which most people are standing and the train that they need to actually be on. And if they're not mindful and they continue to walk and navigate according to the platform that they're on, and they're not mindful of the train that they need to be on, they will misstep um, and fall into a crack or a crevice and, and actually injury can ensue. Um, and that's obviously not good. So they, they constantly remind everybody with signs and with, with uh, announcements, please mind the gap. Please mind the gap. There's a difference between kind of our usual way, our everyday way, and where we're trying to go. There's there's a gap, there's a difference there. And I like that concept. I mean, I'm gonna take it into today's message a bit. And the title of today's message is gonna be called, When We Encounter God, Please Mind the Gap. When we encounter God, please mind the gap. Because there's a difference oftentimes in terms of what we believe and think about God and who God truly is. And when we actually then encounter God, when we actually have times where God reaches us and and is dealing with us, we're often surprised to learn how who God truly is and how God reveals himself to be is actually quite different from maybe the ideas and conceptions that we had of God in the first place. So I'd like to start with an analogy that I've I've used a long time ago, but I like this analogy and I think it fits very well. It's uh, the story of the rhinoceros and the unicorn. And I know probably many people haven't heard of this one um, because this is something that I sort of use in in my world um, to to help help people understand there's a difference between what you think you know and what the reality is. And the rhinoceros and the unicorn, it, it goes like this. We all know what a rhinoceros is, don't we? It's the great big animal that we've seen in the zoo or that we've seen on TV. We probably wouldn't want to walk up on one, right? Um, It's got the long horn. It's got, you know, it's the second largest land animal. And it lives in Africa and in Asia. And that's pretty much what most people know about the rhinoceros. Unless you look it up or unless you're a zoologist or just an animal aficionado, you don't know much more about the rhinoceros than that. Now imagine, hundreds of years ago, explorers from Europe, from the European context, They go and they travel to Asia and to Africa. And upon their excursions, upon their expeditions, they see a rhinoceros, something that they've never seen before. And they're fascinated by this large animal. It's impressive. And they come back home and they they tell people about this large, magnificent animal that they've seen, the rhinoceros. But nobody back home has seen a rhinoceros before. And so they, they do their best, right? They try to convey long horn, you know, it, one single horn. It could be up to four feet in length, huge animal, majestic. And the people back home, you know, take that idea. It's fanciful. They, they sort of spruce it up. With what they know is the largest animal? Well, the great big horses that they have, right? And so, yeah, imagine a great big horse, something like that, but but with a horn. You see where this is going. And so over time then, people who've never seen a real rhinoceros through their art and through their drawing, they start to envision what they think this animal would be. And they ascribe all sorts of attributes to it. It's majestic, it's magical, right? A a, a virgin can tame it, Uh, it's white. And, And when you think about it over the years through art and drawing and paintings, we've got this image of a unicorn, which We probably all know probably more about a unicorn than we do about a rhinoceros to tell the truth. But at the end of the day, a unicorn is not even real. It's not even real. So imagine then somebody from from old Europe who's got this image of the unicorn. They go and they're taken on a journey and they're taken to Africa and, and they're told, you know what, you're gonna see one of these real rhinoceroses. And and in their mind, what they're thinking of is the big white horse that comes striding out majestically into the into the sunlight. Um, it's kind. They probably envision themselves petting it, jumping on its back, going for a magical ride through the forest, right? And so they've got this idea. And then they encounter the rhinoceros. It walks up on them, and as it's running towards them, it's snorting, the, the dust is flying up the flies all around it, it smells, it's huge, it's intimidating. What do you think that person's response is? They're terrified, they absolutely. They run the other way. And, and if they don't run the other way, if they keep that idea that somehow I'm gonna go for this magical ride if I could just climb on its back, how do you think that's gonna end? Disaster, right? And not for the rhinoceros, disaster. And so there's a Very important lesson in this, which is unless we mind the gap, that gap being the difference between our imagination of something and the real encounter with it, it can get us into problems. We have to make an adjustment. And God often uses encounters with him in a very similar way. So instead, replace the rhinoceros and the unicorn with people's concept of God. Replace the rhinoceros with people's concept of God. What do people think they know who God is? What do people think they know God is about? What do they think God cares about and is most concerned about? And what you'll find is too often in our world, in our churches, unfortunately, amongst our family members and friends, we actually pick up things about God that are not true, even if they feel and sound kind of nice. Not true, but it seems to give us the warm and fuzzies. And then God meets us. Then God takes us through something in life, shows himself to be who he truly is, through something that we can't really explain because we didn't have the concept for it. And God moves us closer to where he needs us to be But that's often not a pleasant experience. That's often quite difficult for us. So keep that same frame of mind, and we're going to turn in Scripture to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And we're going to look at a couple of encounters that God's people have had with him through the the years. And, And I think we'll see something quite similar to what we're thinking about when we think about the person who sees the rhinoceros for the first time but it's thinking about the unicorn and how magical that experience is going to be. And then they're confronted with the real thing. And and my goodness, there's there's majesty and there's there's fear and there's intimidation. And and they've got to change their, their perspective real fast or there's going to be a big problem. Exodus chapter 19 and 20. So... The, the context of this, let me just give you a, a bit of an overview of where we're going with this. Exodus 19 and 20 is God has actually set his people, the Israelites, free from bondage after 400 years in Egypt. And after 400 years in Egypt, I think sometimes we may forget what it must be like for God's people, given that for generation upon generation, They've been forced into a slavery situation where all day, all night, every day, all they are doing is making idols for the gods of the Egyptians, making monuments and temples for the gods of the Egyptians, making the storehouses for the Pharaoh who who is treated as the god of the Egyptians. Everything that they're doing is sort of oriented around this system of idols, gods of the Egyptians, and, and they've got this society that's just idol-saturated, and this is what they've been doing for 400 years. And after 400 years of being in an environment, and and you're not permitted necessarily to worship your God in the way that that you've been taught to worship your God, some of that thinking starts to affect you. So they're they're used to gods, little gods, that they can sort of make out of stone and wood, so they're gods you can pick up and hold, right? They're gods you can approach. They're, They're used to gods that You know, if if you need favor, if you need a a blessing or something done, if you approach the God in the right way and you you offer enough money or you give the right sacrifice in the right way, you know, that's how you curry the favor of that God. They're used to that type of thinking. And so imagine now God delivers them out of that situation in order for them to, what does the scripture say, go and worship him. And they've got all these preconceptions that have come from 400 years of dealing with idols. And idolatry, and how how people in Egypt have approached deities and gods. And and this is the mindset that they come with. And so, God then has to set up an encounter. God has to set up an actual encounter with the real God so that they can, number one, understand that there's this gap between what they think about God after 400 years and who God truly is. And that's where we're picking up. I'm gonna read in verse. I'm going to start in verse 17. I'm going to skip around a bit, but 19, 17 through 19. It says Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently and the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses would speak, and God would answer him in the thunder. Skip over to verse to chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then God goes through and he gives them what we know as the Ten Commandments, how they should actually shape their society and lives in relation to God in relation to each other, and even in relationship to the land and to the animals that they have. And then down in verse 18, this seems like a wonderful meeting, right? What does 18 say then? When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Can you imagine what it must have been like for a million or so people who had a very different conception of what it was like to actually be able to meet God. And then they show up on the day and what they're confronted with causes them to determine and decide, we don't wanna meet God ever again, You, You Moses, you speak to us, you deal with God and tell us what God's saying, but we don't want anything to do with this because we will die. That's amazing. That's, that, that's quite intimidating. And imagine this scene, right? Because Mount Gerizim, so first of all, God actually had them prepare themselves for three days in order to be, be able to meet with him at this mountain. And, and upon showing up at the mountain, I mean, what's being described here is it sounds like a combination of a volcano that's actively erupting, a thunder and lightning storm, the mountains on fire, I mean, you've got, you've got sort of all the big events that would basically shake the nerves of any of, of the bravest person happening simultaneously. I don't know if you've ever been through an earthquake. I, I've been in LA for a little while. Um, and every time the ground shakes, it gets your attention, right? I've never been in the base of a volcano. I've certainly never been at ground zero of a volcano that's erupting. But I've definitely had times over my life where I've been in lightning storms, thunder and lightning. And when that thunder and lightning strikes right by you, you know, and right by you could just be a mile or two away. It's pretty frightening. I, I the, what came to my mind with this? So, I, I've got a grandfather. He, he, he he's a great grandfather. He's passed on, um, but he was an individual who I used to have a great time with as a kid. Um, he used to, he used to, he used to drink. He used to drink quite a bit. And I remember because I would I would find his beer and I would drink his beer and I'd be as a kid right. But I'd find his beer cans and I'd drink his beer cans. He wouldn't know it, um, but as the story was told to me, even though he he would would drink a bit too much, he never drank on Sundays. He never drank on Sundays. Every other day of the week, drinking. Never drank on Sundays. And, and here's why he never drank on Sundays according to how it was told to me. It said he used to drink every day all the time. And and we lived in Florida. One day, it was a Sunday, he was drinking, and he set his beer can down on a Sunday while everybody else was away at church. He was at home drinking, and lightning struck the beer can after he had set it down. And if you've ever been to Florida, we've got thunder booms every day at a certain time so that that's not unusual. But if you can imagine lightning not being a mile away but it actually being right there and it actually strikes something that you just set down and somehow you live to tell the, the, to tell the tale, you're gonna be different, right? And even though he, he didn't, it didn't cause him to, to quit drinking all along, you know, in AA language, we, we would say, you know, sometimes you just gotta hit rock bottom, but in all honesty, sometimes you, you just need to see rock bottom real good. You don't have to hit it, right? And for whatever reason for him, on Sundays, he saw rock bottom real good, right? Sundays was the day he, he was really clear. And so that became the day where he just, he, he was able to stop drinking. And that tells you something, just in terms of the power of fear, number one, um, and how we can be impressed upon by what God can use in nature and what's going on in the world to get our attention. And his children, he got their attention with not just lightning and thunder, but a volcano and an earthquake all simultaneously. And so I can only imagine the fear that I actually produce and what scripture is speaking to here. And I think what's interesting about it too is that in verse 20, it says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Somehow they were supposed to not be afraid. For God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Many of us think that God is the big warm fuzzy, that God is just waiting to embrace us, that God is going to accept us without any sort of expectation that our lives would align with him. And and while God is still love, while God absolutely embraces us, God is actually doing something that is about God and his purposes. And so even in this moment, you can see graciousness because if you can imagine a group of people who have all these different ideas about God and some may have had this idea that because we can pick up gods and we can hold gods and we can mold gods, we can go and we can, we can go up on this mountain and they're, they're sort of waiting like the person waiting to, to see the rhinoceros thing and they're gonna go for the magical ride. Soon as they come, as soon as it shows up, I'm gonna jump on its back, right? They can have those, those ideas and you always got one or two in the bunch. You always got people like that in the bunch. I used to work at SeaWorld. And at SeaWorld, we always had those parents who when Shamu slam up to the side, they wanna take their kid and put, put the kid on Shamu's back. And I'm like, can you read online what a killer whale is, right? Do not operate on your own perceptions. This is not a good thing. And so we've always got those individuals. So God then has to then show up in such a way where he puts fear and respect in folks so that they don't operate on these ideas that they can just run up on the mountain because God is holy. And because God is holy and we are not, we can't survive that. And so it's actually quite gracious that God would present himself in such a way at this time so that people understood, hey, we've got to stay away and we've got to stand back because God is holy and how can we survive? And and they start to get a glimpse of the God that they really serve. They start to get a glimpse of the true God that they may have once thought, he's just waiting to embrace me. I can't wait till we see him on the mountain, first step. And then it's so interesting to me, Exodus goes on then to say uh, a number of things in the 10 commandments. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from God's people's experience on Mount Sinai. One of the things that I've noticed about this that always stands out to me is when God starts speaking in chapter 20, says, then God spoke all these words. He starts off with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So often, if we think about what the world and maybe what some of us in the church believe about what it means to follow God, we typically think, oh, God is about things that we can't do. It's about prohibitions. If we're going to live a life that follows God, then we've got to cut out all the fun things, all the things that, you know, maybe all, all our friends are able to take part of and the world's able to do. And somehow we, we've got to sit on our hands. Somehow we've got to sit home on a Friday night or a Saturday night um, and, and we can't go out. And you know what, that, that's, that's, a, that's a warped mindset with this. That's a warped mindset. And when we look at chapter 20, verse one and two, it, it's interesting because it starts out by saying, God is speaking and what God is associating himself with and what he's about to lay down for the people it's associated with their freedom. Not with their constraint, he brought them out of slavery, he brought them out of Egypt in bondage God's law and what he's trying to establish for his people is to keep them free and and if they follow his law, then they're they're not going to then slide back into any sort of bondage whatsoever. And, and so we've got to keep in mind that what God is trying to convey to his people is you are free. And if you live according to my principles, you will stay free. If we fast forward to the New Testament, those who the sun sets free are free indeed. Right? There's a through line through this. And so often we feel like, hey, I think I'll turn my love over to God and follow God when I'm 70, 80, when, 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 when there's, quote unquote, no more fun to be had. Um, and there's nothing further from the truth. You wait that long, unless God's gonna deliver you from all the bondage that you have gotten yourself into up to that point, and God can do it, uh, there's just a a whole lot of wasted time, a whole lot of wasted time, And, and, and tomorrow's never guaranteed. So God is presenting himself, number one, as a God that is about freedom. There's freedom through relationship with God. Number two, God tells us and tells his people his name. That's what he starts with. It says here in in scripture, I am the Lord, your God. But when you see Lord capitalized, God is actually giving his name. And, And the importance of that is it's very interesting. God doesn't start with you're great and you're wonderful. God actually starts with who God is. And if we want to understand who we are, we have to start with, who God is. That is what God cares about. God cares about his name. God cares about how his name is represented in the world. That is God's focus. And there's a purpose that then God is about in terms of his name being represented to the world so that the world can see God's character somehow and be drawn to him. That's been the plan from the beginning. And so he talks to his people and he shares, I am Yahweh, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Who delivered you from slavery? When we think about the different ways where we get it wrong in terms of what we think a life in Christ or a life following God is, um, the, these are just some of the ways. These are these are just some of the ways where, if we were to take a poll of of you know the people who we work with, the people in our schools. Um, we find some really, really interesting things. And that, that's, not the, that's not the shocking part. The shocking part is how much of those attitudes have actually sort of drifted into believers within the church. Believers within the church share some of these same valences. And therefore, what is the solution when you've got sort of this gap between what we think about God, which is not true, and, and, God, and who God really is? The solution then is an encounter with God, the encounter with God. That's why God set, sets these things up. I'd like to take for a moment um, maybe a, a look at why the first few commandments sort of hang together the way that they do, um, and then I'm going to use it just to jump ahead to uh, the New Testament here and, and, and look at Jesus and see how how there's still so much grace, even though God has given his people this gift, God continues to give the gifts, and, and we're recipients of an even greater gift in some ways. So when we think about those first few commandments, God has established who he is to his people. If his people follow his commands, they will relate to him in a way that will bring them life and bring him glory. They will relate to each other in a way that they flourish, and they will relate to the land and the animals that they've been given in a way that that also flourishes. When we look in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, there's an interesting sort of uh, conversation going on there when God creates Adam and Eve. He There's a conversation that says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Hey, and I just want to Say, if you ever get an opportunity to just do a word study on image, here's what you may find. Image uh, is Genesis, so it's probably gonna take you to a Hebrew word. Um, and that Hebrew word uh, is Sadi, uh, uh, which is a Hebrew uh, Let me just say it this way, Salim, okay, Salim. But if you look that up, what that actually means is it's translated image. An image, when we're talking about sort of the ancient days is, is actually something very, very tangible. An image, when you look at similar languages to Hebrew back then, Akkadian being one of them, and you find how they've used that, that very similar word, they, they have a little bit of a different derivation of the word, but, but they're very similar languages. How, how that particular word is used is it's always talking about uh, uh, a sculpture or, or something carved, that is in the image of the king of that particular region, and he sets it out in the domain of his region in a particular area so that anybody who's walking through and comes through knows that this region is under the domain of this particular king. That, that's, what, that's what image, that's the root of that word image. It's something very tangible, and it's actually meant to indicate that this, this image is the representation of the king or the person who's in control of this area. And so think about it, when God creates the world, when God makes creation, and God has been very consistent about, don't make any images, don't make any idols. And he says, let's make man in our image and set man in creation. Then it's humankind that is actually supposed to be the thing that points towards God it's humankind that is actually supposed to be the thing that, that God gives dominion over the animals and the fish. And when anybody sort of looks at creation and they see who God has put there in terms of humanity, they're supposed to think of God and give praise and glory to God. That's what the original intent seems to, seems to embody. But of course, we fell, right? We fell. And, and even though we're all still made in the image of God, there's still some challenges. And so this is where I feel it's really, really difficult whenever I see uh, a lot of young people who somehow get the idea that you know through the media, social media, TV or what have you, they get these messages that somehow they're not valuable, somehow they're not worth it. You're made in the image of God. I don't care how old you are, I don't care what color you are, I don't care if you've got disabilities, you are still made in the image of God and we represent, we're meant to represent something that, that only is possible because God has created us the way that God has created us, and it points to him. That's the intent. Then we go on to, do not take the Lord's name in vain, Exodus 20, chapter 7. And I want to use this as the springboard into the last part of what I'm going to say about this into the New Testament, because I think that's a very interesting, unfortunately often sort of misunderstood particular commandment because most of us think do not take the Lord's name in vain means don't use God's name in a swear word, something along those lines. These are the things that we pick up from the world, right? We're talking about what are the things that we think we know about God, but actually when we realize who God is, uh, it doesn't quite match up. This is one of those. That commandment is actually saying, do not bear God's name in vain. Bear as in to carry. And you can find the the same word used uh, when Aaron, the high priest, is is bearing, taken upon his shoulder, the aphod that has the names of all of the tribes of Israel on it. He's bearing the name of the tribes of Israel before God. He's representing the people of Israel before God. And he's representing them and he's supposed to represent them well. And he also has something on his turban that has God's name on it. And so bearing the name means God has placed his stamp upon you and you're supposed to represent his character to the world who then will see God's character and be drawn to the Lord. That doesn't apply to all of humanity. That applies to God's people. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. But thank God in the New Testament, we can see how uh, in Peter and in different passages in the New Testament, how, how they'll use that same language where they're declaring that the Gentiles now are grafted in. The Gentiles are meant to be a royal priesthood. And it's the same language that you see in the Old Testament in terms of God designating the Israelites as his people. And now he's incorporating us into that process. And so we now are grafted in ways where we are God's people. And as God's people, we then are supposed to be stamped with God's name. And we become God's name bearers. And we're supposed to then reflect God's character. To the world. Not in a way where the world sees us and they're drawn towards us. That was the Old Testament. But because of Christ, we're sent out into the world to actually bring God's word and, and represent his character. We're sent out. So, so it's, it, it's tremendously gracious what God is doing in Exodus. But there's grace upon grace is what scripture said when we think about what Christ has done. So when we think about John, chapter 1 and we think about chapter 1 verse 14 how the word became flesh and dwelt among us that means God actually took on flesh and we no longer have to go to the base of mount sinai he he, he brings himself and he comes near to us which means he shows up at our schools he shows up at our jobs he shows up in in, in the shopping centers he shows up in the line at routes or or Whole Foods, if you're Jesse, he shows up in all these places where God is now sending us to actually represent him into the world. But the same warning that was there in the beginning is the same warning that is there today, which is when you encounter this Jesus, mind the gap. Are we following and are we representing Jesus who is the Jesus of the world, which is the Jesus that is all about love, but, you know, doesn't put any expectation on anybody and thinks that no matter what you do, everything's going to be fine. Is that the Jesus we're representing? Or are we representing the Jesus who, when he was a kid, had to flee to Africa away from a king who was trying to kill him. And so he lived as a refugee. Are we representing a Jesus who went into the temple and turned over tables of money changers in order to bring the space and and address the issue of the people who are most vulnerable, who who can no longer get into the temple because these money changers had edged them out. That's the Jesus that we see in scripture. There's, we have to look at what is the gap between the Jesus we think we know and the Jesus we actually encounter in scripture through life in terms of who Jesus reveals himself to be, the gap, because the gap is where we get it wrong. The gap is where we misrepresent Christ. And when we misrepresent Christ, God's name, Christ's name is not honored in the way that it should, which this is the Jesus that we need to follow. It's the same Jesus that looked around at the church of his day and saw that his people were not representing or bearing the name well. And as a result of them not bearing the name well, he then turned and taught his disciples to pray. And what did he teach them to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. That's the part of the prayer that we always skip over. God's name, of course, is holy. What is Jesus talking about then if he's talking about God? Hallowed be your name. It means your people need to step it up because the reputation that they're creating, given that they're your name bearers, is not living up to par. Hallowed be your name. God, bring it to pass where you wake us up, shake us up, one day take us up because God, the world needs to see who you are. They need to see your character. And for some reason, your people were sort of falling down on the job. This is the Jesus that we see in scripture. This is the Jesus that we have to grapple with. It is a grace of God that he allows us to go through this process, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with this. When we think about how, how gracious a gift this is, you know, when God delivered the Israelites, they didn't have to lift a finger for their salvation. He required nothing of them. As a matter of fact, the 10 commandments and, and him trying to move them into a community that would reflect his character came after their deliverance. Salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Many people died. Many Egyptians died to bring them out of bondage. When we fast forward to the New Testament, salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Christ died for this. Christ died for us. And so let us hold all of that as we continue to uh, grapple with come into contact with God in ways that might be frightful sometimes, but in ways that are always gracious. Because God has a plan for this world and God has invited us into this process because we bear his name. So that being said, I pray that uh, as we go into this new week, uh, we can be name bearers, that God would meet us wherever we are and that God would use us to meet others wherever they are as well. And in the end, God gets the glory. And in the end, God, Christ, is reflected in us. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, I'll go ahead and close this out in prayer, um, and then we'll have a, a closing uh, worship song. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your promise, Lord, to complete and bring to pass that thing which you have begun in us, Lord, that plan that you've begun so long ago to reconcile the world to you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for inviting us into the family, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us, Father God, help us to turn over all those things that we may hold about you, Lord, that are untrue. Help us to put those sacred cows truly on the altar, Lord, and turn them over to you that we may have picked up over the years from the world, maybe even from our families of origin, maybe in some ways from from the church. Lord, help us to reflect you, Lord. Help us to be one with you, Lord. But as we go into the week, Father God, for those of us who who are facing an uphill battle, calamity, adversity, hardship, Lord, Lord, we know that you didn't promise life to be easy, Lord, but you promised to be there with us, Lord. Your presence, Lord, is what we desire. We thank you, Lord, that your presence doesn't have to be Mount, Ger- Mount Sinai, Lord, and, and frightening to us, Lord, but your presence can allow us to find contentment, Lord, as we await how you would unfold the situations that we deal with, Lord. We just bind anything that would come against the family here, Lord, anything that would come against our brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we break the bonds of Satan. We break and thwart the plans of the enemy, Lord, have the glory and the victory, Lord. And in the end, we'll be careful to give you the glory, Father God. If you bring us back together, Lord, we can have those testimonies, Lord. And we will sing your praises, Lord. And in the last day, it will all be revealed. And we thank you, Father God, for, for each and every day that you've allowed us to be here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.